Our text this afternoon, as we hear from the living God in his word, is going to be Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17. That's the text that's on the front of the bulletin you picked up, but if you have a Bible, it would be even better if you turned to it, because we are going to be, we'll talk actually quite a lot about all of chapter 7, not just this half of it. So if you have the scriptures in front of you, it would be better to have it open, but if you don't, then this is good that it's printed in the bulletin for you there. Today is All Saints Sunday. That is, it's the Sunday after All Saints Day, which is on November the 1st. And All Saints Day is a day when we remember those of faith who've gone before us. The Bible refers to all believers as saints. In Romans 1, verse 7, Paul writes, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. In Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul writes, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And the author of the book of Jude writes in verse 3 of that letter, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So, as I think of it, on All Saints Day, it's only fitting to give thanks for the lives of the saints known to you. They might be famous persons from history long past whose examples continue to inspire us today, or they might be persons who are not famous, men and women known to you, perhaps not to many others. And yet they are those whom the Lord has used to encourage you, persons of quiet yet powerful faithfulness. Many of us know such saints and have been impacted by their example. And today is when we celebrate and remember those who have gone before us in the journey of faith. Giving thanks, of course, to God for his sustaining grace in their lives even as we seek to run the race set before us as they did. And I say that because our text in Revelation this afternoon in Revelation 7 verses 9 to 17 is a passage about all the saints. It's a vision that the Apostle John had in the first century, but it's a vision about the end. That is the end of all time. Verses 9 to 17 contain a vision about the eternal future of all the saints of God, a vision that was intended then and now to be of great comfort to the readers of this book. The Apostle John was in prison on the island of Patmos when the revelation that's recorded in this book was given him. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Revelation says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And if you've read Revelation before, 
You know John's vision begins with the glorified Christ in chapter 1, who then addresses the seven churches in Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. Then in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, John is invited into the heavenly throne room where he sees God and Jesus being worshipped. And after the vision of the throne room of God in chapter 4, chapter 5 begins with John seeing on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll sealed with seven seals. And a mighty angel asks in chapter 5, verse 2, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And at first it seems no one is. But then comes a key moment in Revelation when one of the elders said to John, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John in chapter 5 hears of this lion of the tribe of Judah. And then chapter 5, verse 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The apostle heard about a lion and then saw a lamb. And the lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, the next verse says. And then in chapter 6 of Revelation, it's the lamb who then proceeds to break six of the seven seals of the scroll of history. Seals numbers one through four unleash four horsemen who ride out in opposition to the kingdom of God, having been given the authority to wreak havoc and horror on the earth. Then the fifth seal reveals that the kingdom of God will not come in its fullness until the number of those who need to give their lives for the gospel is complete. And then comes the sixth seal. And with the breaking of the sixth seal in chapter 6, the cosmos itself convulses in preparation for the final crisis, for the end of history as we know it, for the judgment day of the Lord. And at the end of the sixth seal comes the question posed by the unbelieving world, who can stand? John writes in chapter 6, verse 15, The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? In other words, who will make it through all of this? That's what they're asking. And the answer they expect is no one. No one, it would seem, is able to stand through all that these six separate seals hath wrought. So that the question that hangs over the end of Revelation 6, to which Revelation 7 is the answer, is... Who can stand? Who is able to make it? Who is able to remain faithful, to endure the suffering that comes as the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdoms of this world? Who can stand? And Revelation 7, I think, gives us the answer. 
It's the saints. It's the saints who can stand, and not just a few of them, not just a few individuals. John says it's a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Now, we didn't read the first part of chapter 7 at the start of the service, but in chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, John's telling us something about this great multitude who can stand. He tells us they are those who have been sealed. Those who can stand, those who make it to the end, are those who are sealed with the seal of the living God. That's really what verses 1 to 8 of chapter 7 are about. Look there now, if you would. Chapter 7 is really a two-part vision that John is recounting. And just as in chapter 5, where John heard about a lion and then saw a lamb, so also we find here that John hears about something in the first part of chapter 7 and then sees it in the second part. Verse 4 of chapter 7 says, And I heard the number of the sealed. And then verse 9 from our text says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. What I, th I think what John sees in verse 9 is the reality of what he's heard in verse 4. And what we have here in chapter 7 is a two-part vision. And though the scenes take place in different times and in different places, they're related. The first scene begins in verse 1. After this, John writes, I saw four angels. That is, after all of chapter 6, after John sees what's coming in the breaking of the six seals. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending to the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, but weren't doing that yet, right? saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, it may or may not seem immediately obvious to you, but what's happening here, I think, is that though chapter 7 follows chapter 6 in Revelation, the events of chapter 7 here are not chronologically following what's been related in chapter 6. This is common in Revelation. It's part of what makes the book so challenging. What John sees is not always in chronological order in terms of when what he sees is taking place. And I'm convinced this first scene of Revelation 7, about the holding back of these four winds in verses 1 to 8, this is happening before what we've just talked about in Revelation 6. The breaking of these first six seals. And what I think John's telling his fellow disciples here is that they're going to make it through the great tribulation because they were sealed before the seals of the scroll are broken. John's first vision in Revelation 7 is of these four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. And of course, like everything in Revelation, there's 
there's different theories of interpretation, but I'm with these, the scholars who suggest that this these number four here, these four angels holding back the four winds, is meant to take us back to the breaking of the first four seals of chapter six, which bring about the riding of these four horsemen. That in other words, the four winds being held back at the start of chapter seven are the depiction of the same reality of these four horsemen that are to be unleashed when the first four seals are broken, which if that's right means again that what's happening in the start of chapter seven is a vision of what's taking place before the seals are broken in chapter six. And this isn't just grasping at straws because like almost everything in Revelation, there's an Old Testament backdrop in view. John seems to have the prophet Zechariah in mind. In Zechariah six verses one to eight, prophet sees four chariots or horses. And if you read it, you'll find these horses have colors, just as they do in Revelation. And the key is that when Zechariah asks the angel who is revealing this to him, what these four chariots with their colored horses are, the answer he gets in Zechariah 6 verse 5 is, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. That in other words... The four horses are identified with the four winds. Just as here, the four winds that we read about in Revelation 7 are probably the four horsemen of Revelation 6. So that what chapter 7 verse 3 is saying is that these four winds, these four horsemen cannot blow or cannot ride forth until the servants of our God have been sealed. Now, the idea is that those who are sealed are protected in some way. Ezekiel chapter 9 is perhaps in the background here. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God warns of judgment against the evil city of Jerusalem at that time. Executioners are to be sent through the city, but before they're let loose, in Ezekiel 9 verse 3, it says, A man clothed in linen is sent to put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And those with the mark are to be spared. Those without the mark are to die. So that before the four winds blow, before any of the seals of the scroll of history are broken by the Lamb, before that, the servants of God are to be sealed. They are to be protected protected from the ultimate consequences of the breaking of the seals of the scroll in Revelation 6. And if you then read on in Revelation, they're protected from the blowing of the seven trumpets too and the pouring out of the seven bowls that are described in chapters 8 to 16. In other words, it's those who are sealed who will make it. They will be those who are able to stand. That's the question this chapter is answering, who can stand? They are secure, which isn't to say they're safe. The great tribulation is still theirs to endure. But endure it, they shall. They shall stand. How? One commentator explains that it's because, quote, the seal, that the seal that protects them, enables them to respond in faith 
to the trials through which they will pass. So that these trials become the very instruments by which they can even be strengthened in their faith. The seal strengthens faith and protects the servants of God from responding to the havoc and horror of history in unbelief. And it's probably more than we can tackle this afternoon, but I would say that the seal is nothing less than the Holy Spirit himself in the lives of the faithful. It's the truth of which Paul speaks in Ephesians 1 that Sandra read about earlier when Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In Revelation 7, verses 1 to 3, John sees the plan before it's carried out. Ahead of the great tribulation, the servants of God are sealed. And who are they, these servants of God? Well, in my view, those who are sealed and those who are able to stand are the saints. <laughs> All the saints. This is where the connection between the first and second part of Revelation 7 becomes critical. Look now at verse 4. John just saw the four angels holding back the four winds, another angel coming to announce the plan to seal the servants of God. And then in verse 4, John writes climactically, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, I don't think we're meant to take the number 144,000 with mathematical literalism. I think it's a Hebrew way of saying it's a huge, vast number beyond even counting. As one author explains it, the number 144 is 12 times 12. 12 is clearly a loaded symbol, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. So that 144,000 is 12 squared times 10 cubed. You'll recall that Peter once asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers, not seven, but 70 times seven. That's seven times seven times 10. A Hebrew way of saying a big number. The number 144,000 is therefore hugely symbolic. It's is it 12 tribes of Israel times 12 tribes of Israel? Or is it 12 tribes of Israel times 12 apostles of the Lamb? Either way, multiplying that by 10 is a Hebrew way of saying big. Multiplying that by 10 again is a Hebrew way of saying really big. And multiplying that by 10 yet again is a Hebrew way to say really, really big. It is as if to say you cannot number them all. I think that the sons of Israel in verse 4 is not referring specifically to those who are ethnic Jews, but instead is a picture of Israel now understood as God's people, made up of Jews and Gentiles. That in other words, the purpose of Old Testament Israel is being realized, that Israel was called and chosen for the sake of all peoples, all tongues, all ethnicities, 
that the church of Jesus Christ purchased by the blood of the Lamb made up of Jews and Gentiles. That's the new Israel John hears about in this moment. James addressed the letter, his letter to Gentile and Jewish Christians, calling them the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Paul says in Romans 2, no one is a Jew who is one outwardly, merely a Jew is one inwardly. And Paul again in Galatians 6 verse 16 calls the church made up of Jews and Gentiles the Israel of God. I think the sons of Israel here in Revelation 7, the vast number of people John hears about in verse 4, is the multitude of God's people consisting of Jews and Gentiles. Because it's when we move then to verse 9 of Revelation 7 that we see, just as John did, what it's all about. What John now sees in the second part of Revelation 7 is the reality of what he heard in verse 4. It's another vision now of a different time and place. We've gone from the past to the future, whereas verses 1 to 8 depicted a scene from before the Great Tribulation. Verses 9 to 17 are the scene from after it, from the end. What John now sees is the ultimate hope of all the saints, those who've been sealed by God himself. John writes in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, not just Israel, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what are they doing? They're standing, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The two-part vision of Revelation 7 is about the same blessed group, the innumerable number of those who have been sealed. They are those who can stand. They are those who will endure. It's a vision of all the saints. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, the Lord promised Abraham. God's call on ethnic Israel was always for the nations. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is now fulfilling the call by bringing the nations to himself in the time of the Great Tribulation. And John intends for this to be of tremendous comfort to his readers. He wants them to know that they have been sealed before the unsealing of the scroll of history. And that means this will be their end, John says. And this will be our end, brothers and sisters, when we have persevered. It's salvation. It's life with God in a place, the heavenly reward, eternal life in the new creation, everlasting intimacy with the Lamb who is our shepherd, what could be a more appropriate focus than this on All Saints Sunday? Because we need this vision to be faithful. How else are we to endure the suffering and tribulation that comes our way? God saves his people. In the end, what are they praising him for? It's there in verse 10. They're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now assembled around the throne, they ascribe their salvation to God. 
all praise goes to God and the Lamb for their salvation because salvation is God's work. He is the one who delivers his people. And the whole host of heaven knows this is so. The salvation of some from every people group fills the angels around the throne with praise. They fall on their faces to worship God. Verses 11 and 12, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. To close our time this afternoon, I want to address one other thing in this chapter in verses 13 and 14. After the scene of angelic worship, John writes in verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, They are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Final element I want to address at the end here is this language of the tribulation. I've already talked about it in ways that reveal my understanding of it, but it's important to make it clear because it unlocks the nature of the strong comfort Revelation 7 is meant to give us. Verse 14 says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Notice that the angelic elder addresses John in this, beginning in verse 13. He's seen the future vision of the saints from all nations and languages and tribes and peoples. Only who are they? They are those coming out of the great tribulation, not those who came out, not those who will come out, but those who are coming out. Implying, I think, that something was happening then in the first century that continues to happen today. Listen to how one author puts it. He says, the word that is translated tribulation in the Greek means pressure. John is referring to the pressure along the line where the kingdom of God collides with the kingdoms of humanity in rebellion against God. The great tribulation is what takes place when the kingdom of God invades the world and comes up against the kingdoms that are inconsistent with it. This ties directly into what we're talking about from Matthew at this very moment as we consider Jesus proclaiming the gospel in the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When does this take place? In John's mind, it started when Jesus came into the world. In John's mind, the tribulation, the great tribulation, began with the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. It began with Pentecost, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the embodiment of the kingdom. The great tribulation has been on since Jesus came. It was on in John's day. It has been on all through church history. It is on even now. The New Testament says it will intensify as we get closer to the final crisis, but it has been on ever since the angels filled the night sky with the song, there has been born for you a Savior. In Revelation 1 verse 9, John writes about himself, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom 
and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Tribulation and kingdom and endurance, they all go together. What do we need to make it? To be those who patiently endure as members of God's kingdom through the tribulation that characterizes this time between the first and second coming of Jesus? Well, we need the vision John gives us in Revelation 7. We need to know the future of all the saints, of those who have been sealed. In addition to it being All Saints Sunday, this is also the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And in a moment, Megan is going to lead us in prayer for the persecuted church around the world. And as we pray for those who suffer persecution, and as we ourselves suffer tribulation of various kinds, whether now or in the future in our lives, we need to hold on to what we've seen and heard from Revelation 7. We need to hold on to the fact that we have been sealed in the past so that we in the future will be part of that great multitude around the throne. In other words, verses 15 to 17 will be our future. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, John writes, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.